Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Tony Somerville, the founder and CEO of Fleetio, a SaaS product that helps businesses automate fleet operation tasks and keep their vehicles and equipment running smoothly. In 2011, Tony was working as a product manager. He tried several times to start a business in his spare time, but just wasn't getting any traction. Eventually, he came to the realization that if he was going to have a serious shot at building a business, he had to quit his job and go all in. He and his wife agreed that he'd give it a try for one year, and if things didn't work out, he'd go back to a full-time job. After seeing how his father's business was struggling to manage its fleet of vehicles, Tony set out to build a modern fleet management software for small and medium businesses. He launched his minimum viable product in about seven months, and a few months later had his first 10 customers, thanks to all the time and effort he'd put in doing customer development interviews. But he was only charging about $50 a month for his product, and so there was still a lot of work to do. Today, he's grown his company into an eight-figure SaaS business, built a team of nearly 200 people, and has raised $25 million in VC funding. In this interview, we talk about how Tony validated his idea, built his MVP, tested pricing, built a content marketing engine, and bootstrapped his business for the first four years, and a lot more. So I hope you enjoy it. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Do you have a favorite quote? something that inspires or motivates you that you can share with us? Yeah, I thought about this and I had a couple. One of the ones that I've always liked is actually from Tom Coughlin, who was a renowned NFL uh, coach. And, and his quote was, humble enough to prepare, confident enough to perform. So just a good reminder that you have to prepare and be humble, but also confident in, in what we bring to the table every day. So tell us about Fleetio. What does the product do? Who's it for? What's the main problem you're helping to solve? So our customers are businesses and other types of organizations all around the globe that have a fleet of vehicles and or heavy equipment. So we have lots of different types of customers from trucking companies and, and transportation businesses to lots of construction companies and services businesses like HVAC repair, electricians, those types of companies. And then we've been you know, fortunate enough to be in an industry that's changing dramatically over the last decade or so. So we have a lot of the self-driving car companies using Fleetio. We have a lot of micromobility companies like scooters and, and bikes, e-bikes, those types of companies using Fleetio too. So ultimately they're using the platform to manage these different moving assets every day from a, an operational and, and logistic standpoint. So think about maintenance management, understanding which vehicle is assigned to which person, understanding from an inspection standpoint, which vehicles might need repairs that are, are broken out in the field, having preventative maintenance schedules set up, and really just drives a lot of the the day-to-day, these assets, so you can really extend the life of each one and understand the total cost of ownership and know when to replace an asset or a vehicle um, at the right time. Can you give us a sense of the size of the business? Where are you in terms of revenue, the size of team, customers? Well into the eight figures as far as ARR, and we're about 175, approaching 200 folks today, spread out all across the U.S. We're based in Birmingham, Alabama. We've long been a, a remote first company and even have folks in, uh, in Canada and Mexico now too. Awesome. And what about customers? Uh, we have about 4,000 customers that use Fleetio and uh, manage about half a million vehicles in the platform today. Are they mostly U.S. or you, have you got a global customer base? 
Yeah, we're in about 75 countries with paying customers. The majority of our revenue still comes from the US, but we have a lot of customers in Australia, the UK, and then a number of you know sort of countries with a handful of customers. So that was one of the really exciting things about fleet management is tactically a lot of the things that you need to do to manage a fleet effectively are pretty similar no matter where you are in the world. And the things that are different are just kind of hours versus or, or liters versus gallons and the different sort of ways of measurement. Okay. And then in terms of funding, you've raised, I think, just over $25 million to date. You founded the business in 2012. And I think it was for the first four years, you bootstrapped the business. Yeah. So I'm a solo founder, started it in my house and bootstrapped for yeah about four years. Uh, we did a couple of rounds of, of angel investment after um, starting in 2016. One was 750K, the other one was about two and a half million. And then we raised our first institutional capital round in, uh, in 2020. And that was a, a $21 million round. Okay. So how did you come up with the idea for this business? And what were you doing at the time? Yeah. So before starting Fleetio, I was a software engineer. I worked for a few years out of college at a bank, decided I, I didn't really love the, the large corporate world and the banking world. So joined a relatively early stage, uh, fast growing SaaS company in like 2005, 2006. Worked there for about six or so years in software engineering roles. And then that company raised some capital and had the opportunity to do some um, business development. We acquired another business and then I was a, a product manager for the last few years. But I, I come from a, a long, a, a family full of entrepreneurs. Both of my granddads and, and my dad are, are all business founders or entrepreneurs themselves. And so I always had it in my DNA, I guess. And the, the last couple of years I was at my previous company, I was just really thinking a lot about ideas through the lens of my dad's business, which is a big electrical supply, electrical distribution company. And I'd grown up working in that company. That was my summer job every summer. And, you know, I was very familiar with kind of a little bit more of that sort of blue collar industry. And I would always think about like, what are the types of things that you know, business like my dad's kind of struggles with from an operational standpoint that software, particularly you know, software as a service, as everything was moving to the cloud. And we had clearly mobile was going to be a huge part of the, the future of how people sort of worked. Um, and it sort of occurred to me that they had this fleet of vehicles and it wasn't necessarily a core competency of theirs uh, to operate them every day, but it was very important for their business. And just saw like that as a seed of the idea, I guess you could say. And then, you know, really spent a lot of time in the early days just talking to lots of different types of organizations and really trying to, to you know, pinpoint if there was truly an, an opportunity there to really build a, a modern fleet management system. So what came first, the desire to start your business or the idea that led to starting a business? I think I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur, even from, you know, being a kid. So I probably always had that desire. I think it was just a matter of in my experience, in my own just sort of personal journey, I wanted to get a lot of experience and be able to, I really enjoyed the aspect of building software and, and building those skills that allowed me to actually build Fleetio without any outside capital. But then also spending time as a product manager too, kind of helped me understand like, how do you validate ideas? How do you really understand pain points that potential customers would have and so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I always knew I wanted to start a company, but built some skills in my professional career prior to starting Fleetia that helped me kind of hone in on the idea and, and actually get it launched. Did you have a bunch of other ideas around that time? Yeah. And I had tried to do the nights and weekends thing too in my previous job. So I would spend uh, literally nights and, and weekends. Actually, I, I would get up really early. I'm more of a, a morning person. So I'd get up at like 4 a.m. And, and work prior to, to going into the office. And I, you know, I was always interested in real estate. So I had this kind of like rental market thing. It was not claiming that it was like a, a precursor or similar to Airbnb, but just I was very interested in the rental market. So I'd worked on that. But I, I think one of the things I realized especially in the last few years of my career before starting Fleetio, it's like, 
doing the nights and weekends thing, I know some people can make it work, but it's a lot of effort to get a company off the ground. And, uh, and really you need to get out and talk to people and validate ideas. And a lot of times if you're going to talk to people, you got to do it during business hours. So that's when I sort of realized that if I'm ever going to do it, I got to take the plunge and fully commit to it. Okay. So what was it about this idea that pushed you to committing to this thing that you were then going to quit your job for? Yeah. Well, and to be fair too, like I had a, a there was probably two or three ideas that I was going to pursue when I quit my job. And this was, I thought probably had the most, the most opportunities and I didn't really investigate too much any other ideas, but I think the thing that really got me passionate about it once I started talking to potential customers in the early days was like just seeing the same patterns over and over again, the same pain points and and the passion for which people sort of were like, yeah, we suck at this. We suck at managing our fleet. And also just me realizing that there wasn't, nobody had built like a modern fleet management software solution. A lot of the softwares out there were really aimed at like the very large fleets. I think about like the Pepsis and UPSs of the world. But if you looked at the market, when you start living sort of the total addressable market analysis, there's this long tail of literally hundreds of thousands of businesses like my dad's that have 50 vehicles, and they're not going to go out and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on old school software to manage 50 vehicles. And, you know, you just always, you also see too, like, okay, the combination of of sort of web-based or SaaS plus mobile, you're managing these assets that move around all day. So by nature, these things aren't stationary. So being able to access data from wherever and do it from a mobile device, like all these sort of things were exciting. Plus I've always enjoyed cars and I have two sons. And when I was a kid, I loved big bulldozers and all that stuff. So I was genuinely interested in the actual assets that people have. So what stage did you get this idea to before you you quit your job? Did you try to go out and do customer interviews and, and at least some validation before you quit? Or was it literally like, I need to do this and I've tried to do the day, you know, evenings, mornings, weekends thing hasn't worked. I just need to commit and I'm going to then go out and talk to people. What was the order of events there? Yeah, it was the latter. I mean, I, I, I had done sort of the nights and weekends research, but I just knew that like in order to really take a swing at this, I had to fully commit. And, you know, I was lucky. I mean, I was married and, and still am to, the, to my lovely wife. You know, we talked about it for several months and um, this was before we had kids. It was kind of like one of those things where it's like timing wise, this is a good time. Like we could live on her salary and I could give myself a year just to, just to see, you know, if there was really something here and go pursue it. And so that's what I did. And, I mean, I, you know, worked my tail off for that year, especially. But yeah, I mean, I always tell people one of the hardest decisions was just getting started. That day that you quit your job and you're like, what are you going to do? And you're like, I'm going to go start a company. And you're like, well, what is the, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to figure all that stuff out. You feel crazy. Yeah. But then once you do it and you start working on it and you're quote unquote living your dream or whatever, like it is so freeing to, to sort of just actually pursue something. Yeah. I, I've been in that situation and I know a number of founders I've spoken to. It's almost like you're standing at the edge of the cliff. You want to jump. You just can't do it. You can't stop thinking about it. And for me, it was like, I just need someone just to give me that push. And then I'll be okay after that. But it's just that first getting that momentum. So tell me about, so you've quit your job day one. How many customers did you talk to? How long did it take you to figure out understand the problem clearly enough so you could start to think about building a solution. Yeah. So, and I always, whenever we have about once a month, I do like a new hire overview with all the new Fleetio employees and and literally show some of the screenshots, like the emails and stuff I would send out to friends and friends of friends, anybody and everybody who would just, you know, sort of connect me with somebody who worked at an organization that had a fleet. So I spent probably the first 
three to four months just exclusively doing interviews. And this was right, right around the time that Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup, had come out. And there was all these you know, sort of like net, you know, new books. I forgot the other one that was really popular at the time. So I was creating my like one pager and sort of customer interview sheets and then turning that into like these strategy documents. And it's funny, a lot of the strategy we're still executing on today, sort of the vision was cast in those, those sort of early months. And then, you know, I mean, again, I, I had the skills to be able to, to at least get something off the ground. So when I wasn't talking to customers, I was building and writing the initial version of, of the software. And then you know, a lot of the customers were, those initial customers were local. So I'd work on stuff for get sort of features to a point where I would email them and, and then I would just go visit them and like watch them over their shoulders, like using it and you know, get that direct feedback loop going. So that was all like the second half of 2011. So it was, it was technically the, the summer of 2011 when I left my previous uh, company. And, uh, and it was probably only like a seven month sort of time frame to all those interviews and getting like an MVP out the door. I mean, I worked a lot and, and sort of got it um, to where I was getting the first, especially those first unaffiliated paid customers in that first part of 2012. How many people did you reach out to to try and have these conversations and what kind of response were you getting? Was it like, you know, it, was it painful enough that a lot of people were, were responding and were willing to talk? Or was this like, did you have to follow up and follow up until people could give you time? No, and that was the, I'm a big like signals person, right? And I'm, I'm a big believer in like using anything as like data points, right? So if I'm emailing people and they are completely unresponsive or aren't willing to take a meeting, that implies that maybe it's not that big of a problem, right? It's not that big of a deal. But I really didn't have a huge problem like getting, once I got connected to the right person, that people would take a meeting with me. I think we're in the South and, and people are genuinely pretty nice. And I think I always tell people like, use that entrepreneur card. I wasn't trying to sell them anything. I'm just like, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. I want to get just some time on your calendar to come in and understand how you're managing your fleet and see if there's uh, some potential pain points there. And when I would go visit with people, I would just, I would either literally like hear them talk about and describe the problems or see it. I mean, one of the, the best examples, and I knew I was kind of onto something, was uh, meeting with a local nonprofit organization and still a customer to the state. It's called Kid One Transport. And they take underprivileged kids to, to doctor's appointments and they're sponsored by Mercedes. They have like 30 or 40 vehicles. And I remember walking into their, their office, Scott Patrick was the operations manager who managed the fleet. And he had a whiteboard and he just had a, a grid drawn out. And like, that was his fleet management system for those 30 vehicles. And, you know, just getting Patrick to start using Fleetio and going to meeting with them pretty often was really like, you know, the early days are hard, but you need those kind of like those meetings where you just, even if you don't, you haven't solved the problem yet, you know that you're working on a problem that is worth solving. When you had people using this MVP, were you charging for it? I, I started charging the local customers, like probably after about three or four months, I was using a, a measurement of like how often they were using it. And it's even to this day, we, we measure like the health of our customers. And at the end of the day, it's like, if the product isn't getting used, like then it doesn't really have a lot of value, right? And so if you can, I think usage is a pretty good proxy for value. And so once I saw that like folks like Patrick were logging in and using it multiple times a week, you're like, okay, they're starting to depend on this. And then I can remember like specifically with them too, like their executive their executive director controlled the budget. And I was trying to work through pricing and all that kind of stuff. And I think I was like, all right, this will be $40 a month, which coming from nothing was, was, or, or was, uh, seemed like a lot. And they were like, oh yeah, this, you know, absolutely we'll pay for that. So we have increased our prices a lot over time, but yeah, this first kind of like, uh, beta customers, that was a big part of like, am I ready to, to launch this thing? Are they, was directly related to, are they willing to pay for it? How did you figure out that price, the $40 a month? 
I always knew in a big North Star of our vision has always been uh, collaboration. So I knew I didn't really want to do like a per seed or per user model. It was going to be based on per vehicles. And then it's just trying to back into a price where it's like a few dollars per vehicle per month where, you know, they felt like there was an, like a, an ROI that was almost like, like an obvious ROI. Like they didn't have to really think twice about it. So that was the, I mean, it wasn't really like a scientific method or anything like that. It was just more of like, and asking too, like, what do you think, what would you be willing to pay for this? And I remember some customers, cause I was like, all right, this is going to be, you know, $75 or whatever it was. Cause they only had like 15 vehicles or something. And they're like $75 per vehicle per month. And like, okay. And you're like, no, no, $75 total for all your vehicles. And, uh, and so, you know, I think part of it was just like a little bit of trial and error, but you know, you're basically trying to figure out if what you have is worth it to them and just trying to dial in that price. And, and were these mostly face-to-face conversations? You said you were spending a lot of time going out and, and seeing customers. In the early days, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's something definitely powerful about giving somebody a price and seeing their reaction, which you don't get online, right? That helps you gauge a lot in terms of where you are and where the perceived value might be right now. 100%. Yeah. I mean, that that was, uh, and I'm still to this day, a big believer in like getting on site with customers and really having that sort of face-to-face conversation. I know it's been difficult the last couple of years, but yeah, you just, you, you can really like your senses beyond just your ears can really perk up and understand things in a live setting. And then, you know, the, the other thing too, is like, that can then be the basis of obviously like you still want to experiment with pricing you know, in the digital form, meaning like you run different trials or different experiments at different price points, or even doing, I forgot what it's called, you know, $2.95 versus $3 and trying to see if you can boost trials or signups. So there, there's definitely multiple experiments, but I think in the early days, just like having a conversation with people is, and seeing the reaction to a proposed price is, is hard to beat in a digital world. So do you remember how many of the customers who were using the product were, how many of those users did you convert into paying customers? Gosh, I don't remember exactly. I mean, once once I realized though too that, I mean, you also start building the business plan and you start thinking about how does this become a really big business? Like it was obvious that like we needed to figure out a way to get lots of customers. So part of it, you know, was there was really two big challenges in that first year is one, can I identify a problem and build a good enough solution to where people are willing to pay for it? But then two, can I build something at 50 bucks per account? Like in the early days, like, you're going to need a lot of customers to be able to build a big business. So then the second half was like, well, can we build some initial and before the time before it's called product like growth, but can we build a mechanism to where people can self-serve, meaning they start a free trial and upgrade and, and so on and so forth. And so once I kind of realized that the problem was there and the solution was like good enough, then it became more of like a focus and attention on like building a digital sort of experience that the value proposition was there. People could start a free trial and then getting unaffiliated customers and, and starting to really scale the sort of go-to-market engine was the second really big milestone that I started focusing on. So I can't remember how many. I didn't really, because to me, the business wasn't going to be successful if I got you know the first 20 customers that I'd been working with for a few months. And also like I'm from the South, like everybody here is super nice. I also like you're always a little bit concerned, like, are these people just being nice to me because I'm an entrepreneur and 50 bucks a month is, is just, they sort of feel sorry for me. <laughs> and like, I really wanted to make sure that we can start getting customers that have no affiliation to me, aren't doing me a favor at all. Like I'm literally just solving a business problem they have and they're willing to pay me for it. And so that's what, you know, I really started to focus on once I got those initial sort of local customers to, to see the ROI. Great. So from the day you quit your job, it took you about 
I think you said six or seven months to get that MVP out there. How long did it take you to get those first 10 customers? The first 10, I think once we launched or once I launched it, I, I probably got uh, a handful of like unaffiliated customers in the first month. So like four or five and then like seven or eight the next month. So within two months, probably had 10. I know we ended up doing a hundred customers in the first year, right at a hundred customers. So from January to of 2012, got a little over a hundred customers. And it was around the summertime. I can't remember exactly how many customers we had, but that was when I made the, the first hire in the business. Yeah. I want to talk about that because you got to those hundred customers, but you didn't have anybody else. It was you just doing everything, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So do you remember what, what your MRR was when you hired that first employee at the end of year one? Yeah, we were probably around, well, we were probably about a thirty to 40,000, somewhere in that neighborhood of ARR. So then the bet was like, and we, we had some additional capital that we could put into the business, but it was like, okay, can I cover somebody else's salary based on our MRR and, uh, and hope that it continues to grow and then sort of be able to build a, a sustainable business? Okay, great. So you're doing about a few thousand dollars in MRR at the end of year one. I mean, 100 customers by yourself as the only person as a solo founder. I mean, that's pretty good going. So props to you on that. Who was your first hire? Where did you decide to invest that money? Yeah, so um, he's actually still with us. His name's uh, Matt. He um, was somebody I met at like a local kind of startup mixer meetup thing. And I knew that at that point, like our problem wasn't necessarily the development side. It was just like, I needed a generalist to help me with everything else. So sales, support, starting to really build a content marketing engine. And we can talk more about that, but just Matt just did everything other than write software. Okay. So you've got Matt on board. And then I think you, year two, you hired what, another three, four people? Yeah. So then the next hire was Jorge, who is now our CTO. And at that point it was like, okay. I need to hire somebody that's way better at me than writing software and can focus on it, you know, full time. Because even at that point, we're I'm trying to to focus on all aspects of the business and starting to set up initial processes for support and so on and so forth. So the next two hires were two different software engineers, um, both of whom are still with us today. One's our one's our CTO, another one's like our principal engineer. And then I think the next hires were we had a support. Uh, a woman who I knew from a previous company that kind of started handling some of the support stuff, other kind of support aspects. And then, you know, I'm proud to say too, a lot of our first 10 hires are still with us today. So our VP of marketing, Lori was, uh, was one of those first, I think she was uh, one of our earliest hires. Our VP of sales, Will was like their first like seasoned salesperson that came in. And that I think around maybe hire eight or nine. And we have yeah several other people in this first 10 that are still with us today. So let's talk about how you built the growth engine for this business. It sounds like year one was just a lot of hustling and, and you doing everything. Once you see that you're, you're starting to generate revenue, you're putting that back into the business and, and trying to build a team around you. I think you mentioned before we started recording that about 70% of your sales today come from inbound. How did you start getting that going? Was that really about starting to write content? What like, what was the thought process that you went through there? And how long did it take you to start getting this inbound funnel working for you? Yeah, so again, I mean, that two major things or milestones to get to is like one, sort of defining the problem, building that initial solution, then two, building a go-to-market strategy that could scale. And, you know, it's funny, like, even the word Fleetio was part of that initial process. When I first started the business, I actually was calling it Automate. So it was like a play, auto, and then capital M, mate. That was a terrible product name 
from an SEO standpoint, because it's just a common word, automate. And so the initial go-to-market engine was really built on the back of content marketing, search engine optimization. So being able to, and even defining the word fleetio, I can still remember just looking for words with fleet in it and finding domains that were available. Fleet.io was actually the initial thing, but then our market like didn't understand .io domains. So ended up just going to fleetio.com. But but that initial focus was in those you know very early days too, like building the initial homepage and the product tour and videos. Like there's still probably videos on YouTube somewhere of like me giving a, a, a video overview or a, a demo um, that was recorded and just trying to drive leads in the very earliest days. And then when Matt joined, I remember one of the first like true kind of content marketing pieces we created. And I'm a big, like high leverage person, right? Like if you're going to do something once, how do you leverage it in multiple ways? And we're still, both of us like are both into automotive. So we had a lot of just like general contextual experience with the landscape of of how vehicles work and that sort of thing. But we're still learning as we went about the fleet industry specifically. And like a good example of us, you know, putting our knowledge or or using our research skills and, and leveraging in multiple ways was like, we were building a lot of fuel features or fuel management related features in the product. We needed to really understand there's specialized credit cards called fuel cards. And so we were, it was, uh, it's, it's still even uh, to this day, a fairly opaque industry. And so we were doing a bunch of research in our, just for our own good. We ended up turning a lot of that research into our first white paper called like how to select a fuel card or a fleet card. And because nobody had really done that before. And so like that was one of the first sort of evergreen type content marketing pieces that we created that and still we have multiple, we've iterated on that one a lot over the years, but that, those are the types of things that we started building in the early days using research, putting together research that people are you know, already going to be searching for anyways. And then they end up on our website and they hopefully start a free trial soon thereafter. Great. I just Googled fleet software and you guys come up number one there, like higher than Captera as well on those sorts of sites. So that's pretty good going. But I guess you've been working at this for, for about 10 years, right? Tell people too. I mean, obviously like you want to do whatever you can to generate revenue as fast as possible. But you know, in this day and age, like one of the things, and, and even before I started Fleetio, that was exciting to me about where the world of like SaaS and really business software is going is like you get to use kind of like consumer marketing techniques in a business sales setting. And so the opportunity that the internet has provided all of us is the ability to sort of get our messaging and value proposition out to the masses. And if you know what you're doing in a fairly um, streamlined way, and so like from the very early days, I always think about like farming, like we're planting those seeds and watering them. And if you, at first it takes a while, but you know, if you do it and you're relentless about it, like over time, that stuff starts to grow. And, uh, and it's a, it, in and of itself becomes like a relatively, you know, good moat for the business. So year two and three, were you still self-funding the business? When did you raise the first round of investment? Yeah. So that was four years in. I mean, honestly, it was just yeah. like, we're just so heads down and focused on building a good business and being capital efficient and so on and so forth that I didn't really think too much about. And I was probably naive, but just didn't really think a lot about fundraising and developed some really good relationships with some mentors, particularly one that had built some very successful based businesses in, in Birmingham, Alabama, where I live. And uh, in 2016, he was the primary investor. And at that point, it was like the business was going really well. We were really, truly capital constrained. Like I wanted to hire more people. And the beauty of software as a service and recurring revenue is you get that recurring revenue. The challenge is that you have to find, you don't have a lot of capital up front oftentimes. And so that, that first round of 750K really enabled us to hire ahead of revenue for the first time. 
So the other thing that, other than content marketing, a sizable chunk of your revenue also comes from outbound sales now. How did you build that out in the early days? Obviously, year one and two, sounds like you were doing most of the sales. You hired your first salesperson year two. And then how did you build that team out? How did you grow sales? And how did you figure out how much of your time you were going to spend in doing some of these things like inbound and paid advertising and investing in sales? So was this really just trying a whole bunch of things? Or or was this like, what was the growth strategy in the early days? Like, how did you figure out where to invest the money that you had? Yeah, I mean, it's really all inbound, but using primarily channels like SEO. So just continuously building for the long tail. The nice thing about the fleet management of the automotive sector is there is like a long tail of searches that are applicable. So then it just becomes writing blog posts and writing content that you'll hopefully end up on a keyword for something that relates to what you do. And you can gather website visitors that way. Um, In the early days too, we started using Google AdWords and things of that nature. I think because we were bootstrapped and always needed to be extremely capital efficient, like we built a lot of the really important like measurements of ROI and CAC and payback period and all those things for all these different channels, especially the ones we have to pay for, um, like Captera and like Google AdWords and all those types of things pretty early on. So we didn't have a lot of money to burn and, and be wrong about those things. So we had really good systems in place from, from the early days there. Really outbound, we didn't, it was more focused on inbound for a long time because that was working and there was just this huge ocean of, of possibilities there. Um, and we could see too, like you know, we were capturing, you, know, you monitor all the ratios, right? Like how many unique website visitors are you getting? And is that growing month over month? But then are you also able to you know, grow the percentage of those that you actually convert into a lead? And then of those ones that are a lead, how many of those convert into a paying customer and so on and so forth. And it was clear like there was, and still is to this day, I mean, lots of room for improvement in just the inbound funnel. I don't think we really started focusing on outbound until well north of 10 million in ARR. At that point, you're sort of thinking like, okay, how are we going to get to 100 million? And you start sort of thinking about like, well, what are the channels that we're going to have at 100 million that we need to start developing today? And outbound was always one of those things. It's a huge ocean of, of potential customers and like, if you rely on everybody to do some Google search to come and find out about what you have to offer, like you're just, you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities. So we had to build, but building an outbound sales team, it took some trial and error. It took finding the right leader to really build that team. And, you know, and, and then it takes time too. It's not like a three month thing and all of a sudden it's working and you're like, oh, that was a good investment. I mean, it, it, it definitely takes some trial and error and time to get it right. So what did the funnel look like in those first few years? So you're getting a lot of inbound traffic, which is great. So the investments that you're making in SEO, content marketing is slowly starting to pay off. And then what would happen? Would people just request a demo and then your sales you know, person would pick up from there and, and try to convert them? Or were you driving more towards, okay, this kind of product-led growth model, you know, can we build more of a self-serve model and get these people to onboard themselves? Yeah, the original, like our primary focus has always been driving trials because if you get somebody in the product, you know, in theory, they can, and still to this day, self-close, right? Like, or self, become a customer without needing to, to talk to anybody. I think when we were in the, before having a larger sales team, like it's, uh, if you have a lot of like leads, you need to have enough sales capacity if you're going to drive demos to be able to actually conduct those demos. And so in the early days, like if you were to go back and look at our website, a lot of like the calls to action were start free trial. Now it's a mix of both. And we do have a lot of calls to action to request a demo, but now we have a team of people and we will respond to that demo request within a couple of minutes, if not seconds. And we have inbound sales development reps that will email you and call you immediately. 
and then I schedule a time for, and we have a, a huge team of account executives. And now today it's all structured. We have different departments, SMB versus mid-market versus enterprise. But in the early days, it was just like account executives, and we only had a few, would would get assigned any lead. It didn't matter if they had 10 vehicles or 10,000. And they would just get assigned the lead and they would just follow up with them when they could. And that again goes back to like, why raise money? What's well, like, it's starting to work. You can see it in the numbers. And it's like, we need to hire more people to be able to handle the demand. And in my opinion, like that's when you should be raising money is when you know you've got a good use for it. So at some point you you decided to build a second product. Can you tell me about that? When did that happen? What was the driver? Yeah. And that was probably one of the larger mistakes looking back that we made over the, that I've made over the last, over the last decade of building Fleetio. And so what I sort of thought, and this was me sort of not doing enough customer validation was that we've got this now fairly large customer base that's managing their assets. We want to manage the drivers too. And in the fleet, we're all driver behavior. How good of a driver are you? How safe are you? Is definitely a big deal. And traditionally, there's a huge industry of traditional GPS and telematics devices that are plugged into the vehicle. Now vehicles come off the assembly line with proper equipment, modems, and all that stuff inside. Um, But historically, it's always been like an add-on piece. And then those things track every trip, you know, how the vehicle's being used. Well, we wanted to build something, and we ended up calling Fleetio Drive, that would use your cell phone. And basically be running in the background. It would detect automatically when you started a trip, just based on the motion of the phone and all that stuff. And then it would also really track all the different aspects of how you were driving. So hard braking, rapid acceleration, hard cornering, all those types of things, and then come up with a score. So we called it Fleetio Drive. The problem was that when we took our off the ball of what was working at that point, sort of the core platform was really growing. And it was like, okay, let's go and build a second product that we can sell into the base and have two things. And the long story short is that we we, we spent a lot of time building the second product. It, and it was tough because it, it's not like it had no success. It had some success, which makes those types of things harder to kill because it wasn't a complete flop. It also wasn't just like a knock it out of the park home run. And so, and it really was a couple of years of effort before we finally just decided to shutter it and, and get back to focusing on the core platform. How did you make that decision to shut it down? Because like, like you just said, if you make, if, if it was a clear failure, that's an easy decision. But when you're, you're seeing some signs of life and it feels like that there is a potential opportunity here, it's a tougher decision to make. So what led to you deciding to shut this down? And then what was your thought process? Well, one of the things that we've done for a long time is had quarterly strategy offsites with like the leadership team and then a handful of other folks too that are kind of part of this broader strategy team. So at the beginning of our quarter, in fact, we've, we're doing it next week for offsite. So we've always had this cadence of like these larger, you know, big strategy sessions. And starting the, the Fleetio Drive product was a couple of quarters of discussion. And it was like, all right, we pulled the trigger and, and went after it. And then building up to any of these strategy meetings, everybody and and for whatever sort of division or department of the company they represent, they write these briefs of like a, a synopsis or a summary and a lot of metrics and things like that related to what their sort of scope of the business and how it's. And it was sort of a couple of different strategy meetings where it's like, okay, this isn't growing like we hope. So the revenue wasn't there as far as like what our expectations were for success. Um, and then you know, it was also clear too, like this was a much harder product for us to scale from a support standpoint. Cause you, I mean, that was buggy. You're, you're now dealing with drivers, like trying to write in or call into our support team and be like, it's not tracking my trips. So, and then like diagnosing a problem on mobile is still hard to this day. It was even, you know, like back then it was, this was four years ago now. I mean, it was just, a, it was a support nightmare and the revenue wasn't there. And so, I mean, it was just a data-driven decision at the end of the day. 
And then it became like in the strategy meetings, we decided to kill it. And then it becomes like, oh, how do we offboard all of our customers? We're not just going to pull the plug on them overnight. I mean, there was one large customer that had like hundreds and hundreds of drivers on it. And so they depended on it. And so, you know, it was probably a, a nine month process, maybe six months to, to them, find them a landing place for, for to, to a different system for them to put their drivers on. So yeah, I mean, it was a process, but I think the strategy meeting cadence causes at least four times a year, these like deep reflection on how the business is going. And that's been a huge like heartbeat for the business for a long time. Yeah. It's great that you do that. And I think a lot of times when founders think about strategy, it's to figure out what are the things that I should be doing. But often strategy is really about what are the things I say no to. And that's really hard to do. But I do like the idea of this regular cadence just to make time to just step back and and reflect on what's going on. Because I, I think all of us could do that a little bit more. And it's when you pull yourself away, you can, you can see a little bit more with, with clarity in terms of what's going on and make some of those decisions. You decided to quit your job and give this thing a try for a year. You're now in a position where you've got a successful SaaS business doing eight figures in ARR, a team getting close to 200 people, raised 25 plus million dollars. When you started on that first year, where were you hoping this business would get to? Oh man. I mean, thinking back, I knew like, especially six to nine months in, I was like, okay, this can be a a solid business. And I can remember like thinking too, and I I was my own personality and everything. I, I much enjoy the kind of details and the building aspect of everything. So I always even assume too, like I may not want to like, I, I, I don't know. The biggest I could think of, I was like running a 50 person company, which just seemed huge when I were five or 10 people. I think what as, as time goes on, my hopes and expectations have, have risen over time. And now, I mean, it's in the early days, it's hard to imagine even getting to a million in ARR. And then you sort of get there and you're like, okay, 10 millions in sight, right? And then you hit 10 and, and you're like, gosh, we could get to a hundred and, and well beyond that. And just like, so you start, you sort of hit these milestones and then you start thinking about the next one. And so in the early days, I definitely didn't think we, I, I didn't, I, I guess I, I hoped, I, I didn't certainly like, think it could get as big as we've gotten to today. But in a lot of ways too, I mean, I, I hope that if we, we catch up in a few years from now, we're much, much bigger than we are today. So I know we can get there. Was this the first kind of real business you'd built? I know you mentioned you were trying to build businesses on the side, but were you just really in the nine to five before you you committed to this? Yeah, totally. I never founded anything or started you know a real company other than this one. And, and how much help did you get from your dad and, and kind of his experience of building a business, even though it wasn't a, a software business? Yeah, I think what I got from my dad was just like growing up and my dad was the founder and, and owner of, you know, very successful and growing business. And just I sort of seeing one, his work ethic, like I know he he worked a lot and still does this day, but he enjoyed it. Like he was passionate about it and and, and still is. And so I think what I saw is just like, the the work ethic that it takes to build something successful, but also like pressure is not the right word, but just the opportunity you have to to really affect a lot of people's lives. I mean, his business has hundreds and hundreds of employees. And you, then you think about all the families and things like that are sort of affected by the decisions that you make. And you just sort of, you, you see people handle that and really lean into that opportunity. And I got to witness it firsthand from my dad and both my granddads also had fairly successful businesses when they were alive too. And it's just behind the scene peak of like how they act and, and operate and the respect that they garner from the community. I always looked up to that. Awesome. All right. We should wrap up. We're going to go into the lightning round. 
got seven quick fire questions for you. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. Awesome. Let's do it. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? This one's tough. I mean, I, I try to think about any sort of one piece of advice or one snippet of advice I, I could share. I mean, a lot of it is so stage dependent. I think the biggest thing that I've learned directly and indirectly too from a lot of my mentors is just really take care of yourself first and foremost, your own health, your own family, your own relationships, like the important things in life, you got to take care of those first. And then you can build a great business on top of that or a career on top of it. And so I guess one of the mantras I've always had is, and, and heard this from other people is like focus first and foremost on your eulogy, not on your resume. I like that. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? My favorite business book is Shoe Dog uh, about Phil Knight and the founding of Nike. I think it's just the most fascinating uh, story about one of the most iconic companies in our sort of time. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Curiosity, 100%. I think anybody and everybody that I've seen that's built a, a business from the ground up has been genuinely curious about things, all aspects of business building, whatever market or, you know, customer base they're serving. Like you have to want to dig into the details. You have to want to interview people. You have to be just naturally curious and ask great questions. And I think curiosity is just like the, the sort of basis of all that. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Um, so a big thing we do at Fleetio, and I, I preach this to every new hire, is we do a, a daily check-in or daily stand-up. Um, it's, I always tell people it's good, obviously, to keep your team informed or the direct sort of coworkers that you work with every day. But the big reason we do it is in the productivity hack is I call it starting your day on offense, which is just taking 30 seconds or two minutes or whatever to think about what you want to accomplish that day. Put it into writing. Here's what I'm going to do today. Here's what I did yesterday. Here's where I'm blocked, whatever. But, you know, the reality is if you spend just a few minutes thinking about what you want to accomplish every day, that's how you sort of move the ball forward on the important things. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? You know, I, I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about new ideas. I think, you know, if I were going to chase some passions of mine with a, a net new business, I still really do love like real estate and architecture in particular. So probably I don't know what it would be. I have no idea. But you know, pursuing that industry, specifically in the automotive world or landscape, I think a crazy idea would be, and I don't even know if anybody's working on this, probably are, but just trying to figure out how we take sort of a traditional ownership of vehicle like the title and sort of put that on the blockchain, I think would be interesting. So I don't know, just a couple, couple ideas. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Uh, I was a pretty accomplished swimmer growing up and it probably gave me a lot of my own sort of push to make myself better every day because you're really just competing against yourself and, and trying to better your times. But when I was 10, that was probably when I peaked because I'm, I'm not that big. A lot of the best Olympic swimmers, they're all, all pretty big guys. But when I was 10, I was uh, ranked fifth in the nation in the 100 freestyle. Wow. And finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Um, so I have a great family, two, uh, two boys and a lovely wife. And we, uh, uh, we're lake people. Uh, so we, we spend as much time as we can outside of uh, on the weekends, especially in the summertime up at our lake house on Smith Lake. Nice. Great. Well, thank you, Tony, for joining me today and, and sharing your story. I think it's always you know, great to talk about where you are today and how you've been able to scale the business. But I think equally importantly, it's great to cover those early days and sort of talking about the first year and, and doing thing, every, everything by yourself. And I know that's not always the easiest thing to remember. I mean, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. So thank you for uh, you know, racking your brain and helping us understand and share that story. Now, if people want to find out more about Fleetio, they can go to fleetio or fleetio.com. 
And if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, more of a lurker on Twitter. I'm at Somerville, but I really don't tweet that much. But if anybody wants to, just ping me via email. It's just Tony, T-O-N-Y, at Fleetio.com. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you and the team the best of success. Thanks for having me today. Enjoyed it. My pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.